Worship in the World is a screen-free worship experience brought to you by Downtown Church. Downtown Church is a community of unfinished people based in Columbia, South Carolina. We believe in asking honest questions while we strive to follow Christ with our own communities, loving people wherever they find themselves on their faith journey. Thank you for being with us today. evening, Jesus took his place with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed and began to say to him one after another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus said, You have said so. I have to admit that my first thoughts on betrayal went to what it felt like to be betrayed. That was the safest option. Affairs of the heart are the first to come to mind, feeling dissed by a friend that no longer has time for me, learning that I am a subject of unflattering gossip. I now realize that many of my betrayals were mostly growing pains. What I found much more difficult to consider is that when I have been the betrayer, sometimes as an oversight or misunderstanding, but also deliberately, 
hurtful, deliberate, sometimes sneaky, and sometimes known only to me. I have a memory from the fifth grade. Along with friendship rings being a thing, there were also friendship books or autograph books that we would ask our classmates to sign. It was kind of like signing yearbooks, if that's even still a thing. There was a little boy named Ted, and he wanted to sign my book. I didn't want him to, so I made up an excuse. I had not learned to lie yet, and it was an awkward interaction. His feelings were hurt. I felt bad about it. You see, I didn't want him to because he was a little boy that came to school poorly dressed with a bad haircut. He was loud and awkward. I was starting to learn about being judged by others, and I did not want to be judged by an association with him. It would have been a typical elementary school interaction, except that Ted and his brother died that evening while riding their bicycles. They were hit by a car. I was ashamed of my behavior, and I could not tell anyone. The shock of his death was compounded by the guilt of my unkindness. I went to a small school in rural South Carolina, and integration of the school system began when I was a junior in high school. There was one young black woman that came to our school that first year. I still remember her name. I would see her alone in the hallway. I was not against her being there. I thought about talking with her, but I failed to do so. I'm still disappointed by my cowardice and not being the person that I want to be. In more recent years, my husband came to me with a problem, a big problem for him that needed to be shared. Granted, I had a lot going on too, but my response was, well, you know what you need to do. I have regretted that dismissal of him and my lack of compassion in that moment. Those memories are still vivid. I may be able to avoid your judgment. After all, you may not be privy to what's in my heart, but even those secret betrayals can keep me awake at night if I don't deal with them. So I can't fully imagine what it must have been like for Judas, the betrayer, and Jesus, the betrayed. Jesus must have felt great sadness and disappointment, but I believe he would have forgiven Judas if only Judas had been able to ask. I don't know how Judas may have tried to rationalize or justify his betrayal of Jesus. Perhaps he thought it would not get that bad. After all, he had seen Jesus perform miracles. I have witnessed loved ones wanting to do the right thing and in a moment of weakness or temptation fail. I have witnessed it in myself. Surely not I. I would never be that unkind. I would never be that cowardly. I would never be that hard-hearted, would I? Speaking tones that I can hear 
how no one knows anything in here Is it any wonder I try Is it any wonder sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter said to him, though all become deserters because of you, I will never desert you. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Fear. We all think we know what we would do when push comes to shove and things get hard to do. And so did the disciples. And yet, they all deserted Jesus in his hour of need. As Lucas mentioned in last week's sermon, fear is an incredibly powerful motivator. As humans, we are hardwired to seek comfort and to avoid pain. Despite the overflowing love and compassion that Jesus had shown his disciples, they deserted him. And the reason is simple, fear the fear of persecution. The disciples all denied Jesus in acts of what they believed was self-preservation. They ignored his teachings and that they even knew him to preserve themselves. 
What makes this desertion or denial even more devastating is Jesus' knowledge that it was coming. He knew that his closest friends were going to desert him when he needed them most. I can only imagine the hurt that he felt knowing that they would all desert him in very short time. And yet, despite knowing that he was about to be deserted by his closest followers, he continued to love them and treat them as friends. That is the part of the story that has mystified me as I prepared for this talk. We, and myself probably most importantly, are not in the mode of forgiving or being helpful for folks. It often seems that we are eager to seek out negative intent even where it may not exist. Here, Jesus did not have to go looking for any negative intent. It was all too real. He was going to be denied and deserted by those he loved and then crucified. It's one thing to be alone in a time of quiet contemplation. That alone time is probably good for the soul and for your mental health. That alone time that Jesus experienced, however, was a whole different thing. He was going to be denied and deserved by those he loved and then crucified. He had the most to fear, and yet he overcame it. He stood still and faced his persecutors. He did what his disciples were unable to do. He overcame fear because of God's love. At the epitome of his pain, Jesus was still praying for his oppressors. He was still forgiving. Perhaps we need to think of how we handle folks that disagree with us or have wronged us. custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, pray that you might not come into the time of trial. 
Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and he prayed. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. When I was asked to talk about this passage, I immediately identified with the sleeping disciples. But Dawn's thoughtful invitation opened a space to imagine how Jesus might have felt. Praying so hard that his sweat was like blood soaking the ground around him, and he came out in the deep night to find that his closest people had fallen asleep instead of toiling in prayer with him, for him. How lonely and disappointing. If I'm honest, I don't know which part of this pushes me further past the far, far edge of my comfort zone. Comparing anything in my life experience to Jesus's or using the story of the unkept vigil to talk about what it's like to be a mother with a career. Each of my four incredible <laughs> radiant daughters came early and with complexities that sent them straight to the NICU at Baptist. I joke that I'm not good at cooking babies all the way, but the truth is that I'm not entirely convinced that I didn't work too much and rush them into the world. I'm a lawyer. At the end of my pregnancy with Anne and Elizabeth, I was in a trial and working around the clock. I wrote our closing argument, totally in denial about having contractions. They were born a few days later at 10 weeks early. Every single time I had a baby, I got sent home from the hospital and they stayed. So some moms are awakened by their new hungry babies in the night, but I set alarms for every three hours so I could pump for months. Margaret, who's a fourth grader now, was about four pounds when she came home from the hospital, and so I'd nurse her and pump at the same time because she was so worn out by eating. We were both thoroughly exhausted by it. Elizabeth and Anne were in the NICU for almost six weeks, so we did the night pumping thing, and Chad would drop me off at the hospital before taking Sarah Boyd and Margaret to preschool. They didn't meet their sisters that whole time. I spent interminable days in a rocker between their isolates, in vigil. Watching them go through periods of apnea where they would stop breathing and bradycardia when their heartbeats would slow.
requesting their three pound immature little bodies to remember, Anne, start breathing. Or Elizabeth, please let your heart speed up again, waiting as long as I could possibly stand to reach in and rub her tiny feet or pat her doll-sized back to startle her into the complex rhythm of breathing and having a normal heartbeat at the same time. And yet, a boss cuttingly joked that I was underutilizing the hours between 2 and 5 a.m., implying that I can't or won't cut it because I'm a mom. That is a lonely place. An executive who also has four children asked me in a job interview what my husband thinks about me being a lawyer and leading professional boards and community organizations with all those kids. A leader newly exposed by COVID to the previously invisible work of running his own household with kids implied that I couldn't manage a promotion because of my family responsibilities. These are disappointments I did not expect. Moms are filling out the forms and keeping sunscreen in the kitchen so they can slather their kids' faces while they eat waffles. We're buying everyone's preferred brand and scent of deodorant and making sure that nobody runs out. We're vacuuming that disgusting stuff out of the sliding bin that holds the kitchen garbage can, watering the flowers, picking out holiday decorations, scheduling checkups, and paying bills. It was never invisible to us making sure that there are school uniforms and scout uniforms and sports uniforms and shoes that fit and socks that don't feel weird on my toes, mommy. <sighs> Ice for water bottles. And sometimes also making sales calls or stocking gas station shelves or working 12-hour nursing shifts or writing novels or mopping someone else's floors or offering legal advice. And we are honored and humbled and delighted to be doing this sacred work with and for our precious families. And we are awake in the deep night, sweating what feels like pools of blood, praying that folks would wake up and join us in the holy service of shepherding the next generation instead of diminishing it or sleeping through it. If it be your will That I speak no more And my voice be still As it was before I will speak no more I shall abide until I am spoken for If it be your will If it be your will That a voice be true From this broken hill I will sing to you
Still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, though I was a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. The word accusation comes from the Latin word accusare, which means to call to account. In modern English, accusation is a charge or claim that someone has done something wrong or illegal. Note that nowhere in this definition does it mention proof or reasoning supporting such a claim, just simply the claim itself. In our founding fathers' infinite wisdom, they created the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which states in part, The accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy trial and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, and to be confronted with witnesses against him, and to have compulsory process 
for obtaining witnesses in his favor. Of course, these same founding fathers were not thinking of all human beings at the time in which they drafted the Sixth Amendment. They were thinking only of white males, and even still, middle and upper class white males. Interestingly, 233 years later, the Sixth Amendment has not been fully realized. One of the largest issues facing South Carolina and the nation is honoring the presumption, presumption of innocence and working to reduce disparities with race and poverty among the accused. Statistically, people in pretrial detention now make up more than two-thirds, so 66.6 repeating percent of America's jail population, costing taxpayers some $14 billion annually. These are not individuals who have been found guilty, and they are there for a wide variety of crimes. They are simply accused. Certainly, there are instances that require some accused remain incarcerated. But for the vast majority, the only thing standing in their way is the ability to pay bail and then to afford things like transportation and taking time off of work to make court appearances. Of those 66.6 repeating percent nationally, 69% are black, indigenous, or people of color. That number is much higher in the South. 43% report a history of substance abuse. 32% report a history of mental health needs. This uniquely American tradition of jailing the accused and pricing people out with bail triggers a ripple effect across communities, breaking up families and causing individuals to lose their jobs, which in turn disrupts business. For what purpose? At what cost? While many of us are privileged enough not to know what it's like to wait in jail while being accused of a crime, that doesn't mean we haven't experienced being the accused, or in many instances, being the accuser. It can be as modest as blaming one child on the word of another without having knowledge of the true facts, or as hideous as the numerous internet trolls threatening someone they disagree with without attempting to understand anyone's side but their own. It can be walking down the street, internally coming up with an entire degrading story about why the homeless person talking to themselves next to you is acting that way, defining that person simply by his current circumstances. It is rolling your eyes at the mother whose children are screaming and being unruly rather than contemplating how overwhelming that moment must be. Do you ever think about how many times in any given day you define someone by your accusations against them? The crimes they may have committed, the mental illnesses they may have, or even the emotions they show. He is a cheater. 
She is depressed. Why can't she just pull herself up by her bootstraps? He does not have a job because he's lazy. Anyone in this market could have a job. What has her so edgy? She really needs to relax. You know, he took money from his last employer. She's unmarried. There must be something wrong with her. She must be so lonely. Jesus was sentenced to death on the cross because of one accusation that he was a blasphemer. Based on nothing more than the instant feelings of an unempathetic mob and speechless followers. Jesus did not try to overpower this mob. He stayed silent and exhibited grace in the face of appalling violence. What does this mean for us as his followers? When should we remain silent and exhibit grace instead of joining with the mob without full understanding of the facts and circumstances? When should we speak up? Would you not want his grace and others if you were the accused?
Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Then they sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Feels like this one should start with uh, that warning from all the podcasts, you know. Um, so just to cover my bases... This segment does contain material some audiences may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Then again, if you're in this room, on this evening, you already know as much. And if I'm honest, this assignment is not the first time I've spent immersed in the scene at Golgotha. On the contrary, I'll admit that as a kid, the crucifixion was the one biblical event that never failed to capture my imagination. Of the eight stained glass windows that flanked the sanctuary at Bridgeport United Methodist, it was never the pictograph of the nativity, or Christ's own baptism, or even the one from the upper room that I found myself staring at. To my wandering mind, these were all just prelude a kaleidoscopic drum roll that delivered my gaze to the ninth window, the one just beyond the altar that showed an anguished man suspended on a cross, his arms involuntarily stretched as if to welcome you into his suffering. Was it just me? Did anyone else always tend to get lost in a window like that? And if so, have you ever wondered why? Why keep returning to the darkest, most violent, and wrenching event in all of Scripture? For 11-year-old me, it was the specifics. The details of this gospel story are as precise and exotic as they can be. Nails and thorns and spears and sponges soaked in vinegar. Where else had you ever heard anything like this? And how could it all fit together to make one of the Bible's most unrelatable events also one of its most visceral? That's the paradox of the crucifixion. It's hard to look, but it's even harder to look away. I spent my young adulthood away from the church, but not the crucifixion. 
To seek even the slightest exposure to Western art, music, or history is to confront the cross again and again. But now, it was the societal context that made the passion so difficult to ignore. Ancient people knew crucifixion as the ultimate punishment. Originally reserved for slaves, then extended by means of deterring rebellion, the cross was used to exact the most pain for the longest time. To borrow an expression sadly popular in our own era, the cruelty was the point. In his book, The Hope of Glory, historian John Meacham notes the humiliation and intimidation also at work here. He calls crucifixion the most public kind of execution, the cross a vivid warning not to challenge Rome. Squint just a little and you'll have no trouble seeing that cross the next time you read about a noose left in a black student's locker or hung outside a dorm room. For a justice-loving people, it's hard to look, even harder to look away. These days, about the only certainties I can hang on the cross are that I'll never truly grasp the pain endured there or the oppression we wield with our modern proxies. And maybe that's what continues to send me back to that window. Maybe I'm looking for something more accessible at the fringes of the scene. I, I can't identify with the father who sacrificed his child for humanity. I'm unlikely to experience suffering anything like that of the son. But if I look long enough, I can start to make out those at his feet. Christ's friends and followers, terrified and grieving in real time. I can recognize them because I've seen their descendants. It's interesting, John is the only gospel that places Mary at the crucifixion. But in it, Christ addresses her directly. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. In his last earthly wish, Jesus entrusts Mary's healing to John. It's almost unthinkable. A woman bearing witness to her own son's torture. A woman who knows nothing of the coming triumph, who has no reason to see anything but darkness on the horizon. Can you imagine? I couldn't. Until earlier this month when a picture from the Ukraine found its way onto my social media feed. It was a woman with a permanent marker. And she was using it to write emergency contact information on the bare skin of her toddler's back. I can't imagine. Except for every time an aid organization emails to tell me how many parents are still searching for the children our government removed from their custody at the southern border. And I couldn't imagine until three weeks ago, when from across the country, I learned that my own daughter was being admitted to the children's hospital here in town. She'd suddenly developed dangerous complications to the virus we'd all contracted more than a month ago. Though her only crime was being too young to receive a vaccine, 
it would be a stretch to see the cross in her. Not in her mother. Not in the woman left to watch from the bedside with an adult's grasp of all the horrible possibilities. Not in the woman who will never forget the terror of that week, of a fever that won't stop climbing, of organ systems that won't stop swelling, of a child that can't stop screaming. For a parent, it's hard to look, even harder to look away. Thankfully, my family would find comfort in a swift recovery and favorable odds for our daughter's long-term health. And come Sunday morning, this congregation will rejoice in the promise of an empty tomb. But John Meacham, this time speaking as an Episcopalian, warns us not to skip ahead. He stresses the importance of the tension between Good Friday and Easter. He calls it an acknowledgement of the inevitability of crisis and an affirmation of the hope of renewal. He insists that we can't truly celebrate the mystery of resurrection without contemplating the misery of crucifixion. That is, of course, why we're here tonight. And that is, of course, why it's hard to look and even harder to look away. Oh, how your face burns 
It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Death. I've been in the room three times in my life when people passed from this life. Um, and I'm not a preacher. I'm not a theologian or even that schooled in religion. This is how I think about death. I've come to believe it Think about it as an unfathomable instant of understanding. We fear what we don't understand. And I don't believe that we can even fathom such a non-human event or experience as death. Death means the end of our humanness. Maybe that's why we have such a trouble understanding God. God's not human. God's not man. We are formed in his image, not he in ours. The understanding that he owns, we don't. Our selfish, ego-driven, broken human division condition drives us to believe that we are in control and all must conform to our understanding. But death forces us to face the facts. And the facts are, our spirit is not a person. It's not a human being. We don't know it all, and we are not in control. And all of those facts, right up until the moment that we pass, are true. And then, it changes. And the cloak of misunderstanding is gone. Just like the temple curtain ripped from top to bottom at the moment that Jesus passed from this earth, so too will our unknowing be gone. I also believe that it is also only in that instant that we can truly accept God's forgiveness. At our deepest core, we as people know we do not deserve forgiveness. Our imperfections just won't, won't allow it cannot allow us to understand that we can be forgiven. One of Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. But what if Jesus was dyslexic? What if he really meant to say, is it finished? Am I dead? Did I not save their souls? Is my job not done? What did I not do? But only Jesus could truly say, and he meant it, it is finished. He is not gone. 
His job was complete. Our sins are forgiven and the burden is lifted. All that's good. It's kind of esoteric and a little theoretical. But let's go back to the scripture and to Michael's experience on the cross. And I want you to think about it not metaphorically. It's not Jesus our Savior on the cross. It's a man. It's us. He was flogged to the point of bleeding, stripped of his clothes, led up a hill, strapped to a cross. Nails were put into his arms. The cross was lifted up and he was hanging there. Then two nailed in the feet so he could hang there and then he was left to suffer. Finally, a soldier stabbed him in the side with a spear. And Jesus, the man, like you and me, truly the image of God, died. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It is finished.
Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with spices and linen cloths according to the burial customs of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified. And in the garden there was a tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, They laid Jesus there. Over the years, I have attended, officiated, participated in my fair share of funerals, wakes, burials, home-going services, and whatever term we use. The pain, the sense of loss, the tears, remembering the unspoken words, the if I could see them one more time moments, and the work, yes, the work. Sometimes the work is a form of coping. It helps us manage the pain and deal with the loss and hide the tears the urge, the need to do something, something, anything, instead of sitting under and staring into the shadow of the tomb. The work, somebody has to write the obituary. The work, somebody has to call the funeral home and get the funeral director. The work, we've got to make sure somebody goes to the hospital or to the nursing home or to the house and picks them up. The work. Have we selected the musicians and who's going to sing and who's going to speak and where do people send the flowers? The work. Preparing the eulogy and setting up the meal trains. The work. This isn't just any work. I believe it's holy work, but it's still work. And these works, these actions, they're more than perfunctory mundane tasks that we just check off. There's sort of a, an offering. I think they're an offering, like a last gift, a gesture in honor of the departed. 
But the work can be deceptive sometimes. Even as I was preparing and meditating on this evening's reflection, I've got to admit to you now in the moment of vulnerability, I went into work mode. Went into work mode. I, I don't like talking about tunes. The shadow of the tune. See, when I go into work mode, like Joseph and Nicodemus, I can work, I can do something. The shadow is there, the tomb is there, but if you stay in work mode, you don't have to think about it, you don't have to deal with it. As a person who has dealt with his share of tunes and shadows, and I can't help but think about my two brothers who have passed, and my dad, There's a military cemetery up in South Jersey. Two young Air Force veterans buried there. My brothers. I've never visited that cemetery. Shadow of the tomb. Just the thought of it. I don't even want to be close to it. Not them, the tomb. Oh, I work, did work, keep doing work. That tomb. See, that holy work that we go through, Joseph and Nicodemus, they weren't just going through the motions, they were worshiping. They were expressing love. So even when I think about my brothers, whose cemeteries plot tomb I've never visited, I think about the work that was done, the expressions of love that I thought I was exhibiting to them. But the truth is, even though it's been years, I never sat in the shadow of that tomb. Never sat in it. Grief is a process, and grief demands to be dealt with. We can keep working, but grief is going to at some point have its day, some point. We have rituals, and we have traditions, and we have burial customs, all good work, like wrapping the body of Jesus and Spices and linen cloths, the rituals, traditions, and customs show reverence for our loved ones and provide a process and a path for us to show love, manage our pain, and direct our grief. Thank God for the work. You know, my family, we have a lot of traditions and customs. One of them is eating. We love to eat and we love to gather around the table when someone passes, part of bereavement, yes, the tomb is there. We've got to deal with it. The service might be tomorrow, but we're going to eat tonight. And we don't just eat. I mean, we, we eat. We turn it out. We eat and we cook and we laugh and we tell stories and we lie. Oh, we lie a lot. 
And we laugh and we cry and we eat some more and we tell some more stories. And you remember when, remember that? And it, it's work, though. It's not just, it's work. It's holy work. I have no doubt that those moments are holy moments. Just like Joseph and Nicodemus, we carry out our rituals, our traditions, and our customs in the shadow of the tomb. We know at some point we have to acknowledge it. We have to turn to it. And at some point we have to close it. But not yet. Not yet. For now we have to do this, whatever this work is. We can see the shadow of the tomb. We know it's there. It's looming. We sit with it. We sit near it. We can feel it. The shadow is an ever-present reminder. The time is near. It can't be avoided. In the meantime, let's finish our customs, our rituals, and our traditions. Let's wrap. Let's prepare. Let's eat. Let's sing. Let's grieve. However we know how, near the shadow of the tomb. Were you there when 
to tremble, tremble. Go from this place in silence and trust that the good Lord goes before you and beside you. Amen.